This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. For you are a magnet. Steel, it's all about steel, not thievery, not that kind of stealing. No, it's uh, steel and steel uh, uh, imports. Joe Dew joins us right now. He's a Bloomberg News metals and mining reporter. Now I find out a street.com alumni, just like me. <laughs> um, uh, the, the president announced some what seemed to me to be pretty big tariffs on steel imports. Um, what's what's the story on the ground? What what is there actual dumping of steel uh, in big numbers out of China? From well, China to the U.S. Uh, from China to the U.S., it, it's 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 not a big problem uh, anymore. Um, this was something that the Obama administration worked very hard on. The last two years of their administration, uh, they were imposing a lot of tariffs and a lot of uh, countervailing duties because of subsidization that was coming from China as well. One of the things I've been talking about to everybody, whether it's industry or just doing these news hits, right, is when you look at aluminum and steel, right. China is constantly brought up as the bad guys, right? Because right. they overproduce. And that's the real problem. So when the president goes out and he announces tariffs on steel and aluminum, the issue that the industry has is that's not addressing the problem. The problem is not the dumping of steel and aluminum into the United States. We don't take any primary aluminum from China. Is that going to make China stop producing? And it's not going to make China stop overcapacity. Right. Uh, the Obama administration at the end of their term in January of 2017 announced a WTO case that would address specifically overcapacity of aluminum in China. This was backed by multiple countries, Japan, Europe, not a country, but not a country, but you but, know. but but the continent, Canada, uh, they all stood behind this. And, and then uh, we actually wrote a story in Business Week last year that said, you know, the Trump administration might take this WTO case as a way to prove that they have good negotiating tactics. You know, let's mm -hmm. go negotiate with the Chinese behind closed doors instead of going through a WTO process. They didn't do that. Instead, they went after the 232 uh, case that we just got levied down today with the 10 percent tariff on aluminum, the 25% tariff on steel, and that's where we sit. I'm reading a story, and I know we have got great coverage. The period of peak Chinese steel exports is now past. Huh. So it's like, is this just a lot of flash and no substance? Well, there's substance. I mean, tariffs are, are real. And right now, it looks like if these tariffs are implemented, signed into law next week, uh, there'll be any imports coming to the United States will have those tariffs added on top of them. There are no exemptions right now. So it's not just Chinese steel. No, it's just it's every country in the world right now. So what would that do to our supply chain, our pricing chain? Well, it depends on who you talk to, but essentially the downstream folks, the people who actually consume aluminum and steel automakers, right, are a great example for both of those. They say that their costs will go up. We actually had a story last June in which the the guy who buys the aluminum for Miller Coors, like actually buys right. the aluminum for the cans they use, right. said your beer will cost more if tariffs do come down. We wrote that story and you know it got a lot of pickup, but this this you mean if this tariffs is, are erected rather than come down. So, yeah. so wait, so I just want to follow up one point. You said there's zero amount of, of Chinese aluminum imported in this country. Presently. Zero. What about Chinese steel? Uh, there's a tiny bit. 
Um, I, I can't remember the exact number, but you're looking at under 1%. Uh, and then uh, there is some aluminum uh, sheet that is imported into the United States, although the Commerce Department just levied tariffs on that separately in an entirely different case. So, could, yeah. Could this ultimately hurt U.S. manufacturers? Because I think a lot of global manufacturers manufacture all over the world. So, okay, instead of having the steel and the aluminum coming into the United States, I'll just send it to my plant in, Ma- in Mexico, and I'm going to beef up my plant in Mexico and have them produce more things there. Sure. I mean, these, absolutely, this is what manufacturers have been talking about now for a year. It's what they do, right? They right. low-cost production. Right, exactly. Wherever and, it may be. And, and you know, it, it, it's just... The what, what may ensue next, obviously everybody in the industry is clamoring to figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to procure their metal, what they're going to do with these tariffs being up. And that is a question now that they have to answer. Right? And they, could there be retaliation? There is almost certainly going to be retaliation. This is right. something we've been reporting on for a while. Europe had come out and said, we will probably retaliate. The Chinese have stood against this for a long time, obviously, and many others have, have really not backed down saying that they might have to take steps if we actually implement these tariffs, which the president today said, we're going to do it. Uh, it sounds like you're you're saying that this, the, uh, these things just don't work. This doesn't have the desired effect. If, if the desired effect is to... Stop the Chinese from doing this. This just won't happen. I don't. I don't know if I'm saying that it, it wouldn't work. I'm, I'm not going that far. There are certainly cases, and, and clearly the Obama administration showed this, where putting tariffs on its imports of certain steel products is necessary because there are there are cheaters in the world. There are people who will try to dump their steel in other places because. They want to. They want to at least get something for it. Otherwise, they wouldn't. An aide to um, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. This is just mm. crossing the Bloomberg. Says uh, President Trump must consider the tariff, the unintended consequences of such a tariff. What kind of political battle might there be ensue as a result of this? Well, the, the president has been dealing with his own party, really pushing up against him. And, and, and when you look at the trade tariffs here on steel and aluminum, don't look at party line. Look at where those individual senators and representatives are located. If they're in Steeltown, they're going to stand against it. There are plenty of Democrats who have stood on the side of the president here. Right. Uh, There are plenty of Republicans who have stood against him. Depending on their the beer drinkers? Well, they're everywhere. And the and the beer drinkers came out and had their comment today as well. The beer institute. Our producer. A well-known beer drinker says switch to bottles. <laughs> According to people familiar with the situation. Uh, Joe Doe, you're great. Metals and mining reporter here at Bloomberg News. Oh, we can dance. Oh, we can dance. Everybody's taking the time. Oh, my God. Who is this? this, Dave? Dave Wilson, our it was a one-hit wonder I know. called Men Without Hats. Oh, Men Without Hats. Uh, really? Corey's got it on his uh, playlist. I've got, a, I've got a friend who works at Facebook, and he says they've named all the conference rooms after like uh, 80s pop songs, <laughs> and none of the millennials he works with know the songs, but he walks so down the sad. hallways and they, they get stuck in his ears and he can't stand it. You'd like think that. they'd have them playing in the conference rooms just so people would get up to speed. Facebook could exactly. afford it. But why did you pick this song for your trouble? It's all about safety. I mean, figure with interest rates rising, there are a whole lot of industry groups that are hurting at this point. So where do you find safety as a stock investor if you're figuring that bond yields are going up? Well, I mean, you could pick financial stocks as sort of the obvious choice. Uh That said, Credit Suisse's Andrew Garthwaite, he's a global strategist over there, has another idea. Stick with technology stocks. And he presents a couple of reasons for it. Uh, One is he looks back to 2010 at how the group fared 
when interest rates went up and when interest rates went down. He identified uh, nine periods of uh, rising rates, and sure enough, tech stocks rose as well in eight out of the nine. Whereas with uh, you know the uh, cases of lower rates, it was sort of a mixed picture. Mm-hmm. But what the chart focuses in on is the extent to which these companies have cash to offset their debt. It focuses on a uh, an indicator called net debt to EBITDA. Let's break that down. We're talking net debt because it's debt once you subtract cash, and EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So it's really kind it's of basically a gauge can of you cash pay flow. back the loan? Right. And that's, when that's you the metric. And when you run f- through the numbers for uh, the MSCI World Index's main industry groups, these are global strategists, so it makes sense to look at you know a broader gauge. Uh, you find out that technology actually has a negative ratio. In other words, they have so much cash that it exceeds their debt load, and so therefore, then that debt-to-EBITDA ratio is negative. That is not true for any of the nine other groups shown in the chart. Utilities and real estate, as you might expect, with the highest ratios. So... The way, yeah, yeah, when you put it all together, he figures maybe, uh, you know, even though, you know, there's an anticipation that maybe growth stocks don't look so good and technology is certainly an example of that as rates go up, that maybe they're worth investing in anyhow. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Very interesting. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, talk about index funds that have gun related assets because apparently they're holding on to mom and pop investors despite kind of the blowback that we've seen uh, following the latest school shooting that happened, of course, in February last month in Parkland, Florida. Back with us, Rachel Evans, cross asset reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So, what's going on? Because we have seen a lot of pushback against gun manufacturers institutional investors, companies saying they don't want to be associated with the NRA, mom-and-pop investors saying what, Rachel? Well, it, it, looking at the flows into funds that specifically avoid uh, problematic stocks like gun, gun stocks, we've not really seen much shift at all, to be honest. So there's a lot of talk out there, but not a lot of money that's actually moving. So since the, the shootings on February 14th, we've seen uh, just north of 80 million flow into um, environmental, social and governance oriented ETFs. Now, that might sound like a fairly significant amount, but if you put that in the context of 22 it's billion, nothing. it's absolutely nothing. Drop in the ocean. So, yeah. Yeah, it seems that we're seeing a lot of talk about um, people being very angry uh, with with the gun companies, but there's not that much movement when it comes to an investment perspective. And yet, it is one of the fastest growing areas, right, of of uh, the investing class of the of the mutual fund class, right, or the socially conscious. Uh funds. Right. So, I mean, if you talk to any uh, exchange-traded fund issuer over the last 18 months, pretty much one of their top talking points will be ESG funds. They are starting to put out an enormous number of ETFs in anticipation that they will see this shift from uh, traditional uh, funds into those that prioritize uh, socially responsible or impact investing. Um, 
as as far as now, we haven't actually seen the flows really follow that. Uh, the, the issue seems to be that institutional investors aren't necessarily uh, moving their money in this direction, and nor is retail really. So we're not really seeing any kind of like move into it. It's perhaps a little bit more than where we were at 12 months ago, right? but relatively slow. Bloomberg did an impact report in 2016. They found that one out of every $5 under professional management in the U.S. is managed using sustainable and responsible investment strategies. So you're right, it is growing in import. If these names or gun-related names start to not perform financially, then we could maybe start to see maybe more movement out of it. So this has always been the the kind of, uh, I guess, ghost for, for ESG that they've had to overcome, is that there's a real perception that they underperform. Now, we've really seen a shift in the way that people construct ESG ETFs. So without getting too technical, in the early days for ESG investing, you used to see uh, an exclusion um, of certain stocks. So you would mm-hmm. cut out gun stocks, alcohol, tobacco, stuff that people didn't want to be investing. You might focus on clean energy instead. These days, there's more of an approach to constructing funds to favour um, companies with in those sectors that are good at what uh, are best performing in terms of ESG standards. Right. So you might still see an oil company in there, but it's the oil company that cleans up their mess, for example. So you're starting to see those types of funds that have a, a, a more um, consistent, well, more, more kind of consistent with the broader benchmarks, I guess, in terms of how they're divided right. up. They, they actually therefore lag the, in, the major indexes far less. Rachel Got Evans, it. Bloomberg News Cross Asset Reporter. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to see you. Good stuff. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is the time for the drive to the close. This as we see equities selling off for another day. In fact, we're down about 368 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, off 32 on the S&P. NASDAQ down 86. Each of those major equity averages down more than 1%. Let's talk about the markets with Ryan Dietrich back with us. He is Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial. $615, $615 billion. That's more. Yes, <laughs> many times more. $615 billion in assets and Management Ryan joining us on the phone from Charlotte. Ryan, nice to have you back with us. Uh, Corey and myself here. Uh, we've got the market selling off again. You take out your charts, you take a look at the technical uh, readings on the market, and what do you see? Well, that's right, Carol. You know, looking right at it, we're looking at potentially the third consecutive 1% drop for the S&P. We haven't seen anything like that since going back to Brexit. You know, five consecutive days now of 1% moves. Don't forget, we had two 1% up days, and now we're looking at three 1% down days. And obviously, everyone's wondering, what happened? You know, why are we seeing all this volatility all of a sudden? Our theory is this. Last year was historically dull in terms of the volatility. We all know that. We expected more volatility this year. And sure enough, what kind of happened in the beginning of February? We had the new Fed chair. Chairman come in and going back to 1914. Sure enough, when you have new Fed chairman, you tend to have much more volatility those first six months. Not to mention, this is a midterm election year out of the four-year presidential cycle. Those see about a 17% correction intra-year, which is the most out of the four years, and have the most volatility. So those kind of things all add up to more volatility, and we're seeing that. But overall, we get into it. The underlying pinnings are still really positive to this bull market. This is just kind of what we're going to see this year. You know, it's not positive. The What's Dow that? Jones Industrial Average is now down for the year. 
Um, the S&P 500 is up only 0.27% right now. Um, that puts a different tenor on things. You're right, but also, you know, NASDAQ is up 4%, but you're right, we can get into that. And, and let's not forget, you know, the S&P was up 6% in January, which is one of the best Januaries we've ever seen. And there is that thing called the January indicator, so goes January, goes the year. And when you have a 5% gain in the month of January, like we did this year, the rest of the year has been higher 11 out of 12 times. So normally, you're going to have more strength the good January, but hey, let's be honest, we, we hit February, which is normally a weakish month, and sure enough, that's when that volatility so, came in. Ryan, wait, you mentioned we haven't seen three days of 1% declines on the S&P 500 in some time. Just remind me, what, since when? All right, three consecutive 1% drops since Brexit. Um, since so that would be June of 16 was the last time we saw uh, something like this. All right, having said that, I mean, I don't know. There's things like relative strength index. You know, we look at oversold, overbought conditions and stuff. Is there, right. I mean, Ken, is there anything at this point we could read into what might happen next for stocks? Sure. Well, you know, let's take a look just simply the 200-day moving average on the S&P. That's right where we bottomed. It's about 4% away. You know, long-term trend lines like the 200-day moving average can be those areas of demarcation. And sure enough, it's where we bottomed recently before the recent bounce. So could we go back down and kind of test that, form that double bottom formation? We think so. We looked into, you know, how do bottoms normally form. And sure enough, more often than not, you're going to have a double bottom. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to go back and retest those levels. So to us, you know, we get back down around the 200-day, which 4% away, who knows? the way things are moving, it could happen sooner than later. That's kind of that big test area for kind of what the market very well could do next. But don't forget, March and April are historically two of the better months. So could we see a big correction right now? This isn't normally when that happens. Uh, but still, you know, 200 days is a big one in our opinion. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, the, the old rule books may not apply here. Well, that's exactly right. When you talk about now we finally have higher rates, we finally have inflation coming in. I mean, we haven't even talked about tariffs yet, right? I mean, we don't think the tariffs, honestly, yes, it's when the sell-off started today. But the global economy is so strong. Look at fourth quarter earnings. You know, we, we had record numbers. Well, the market, the market to be sure, earnings. was selling off into the close yesterday really aggressively in the last sort of half an hour or so. Exactly. And that's what we've seen, honestly, recently. You know, the sell selling happens late, and that's what happens. You know, the sell, most of the action is late in the day when you have a lot of volatility. So, we'll, you know, we're, we are off the lows today. And let's be honest, the Russell 2, uh, small caps, are holding up relatively well. So, yes, it's red across the board. I get it. But there are some, some positives potentially under the surface here today. Yeah, I saw Joe Weisenthal tweet that out about the Russell 2000. It's uh, been down as much as 1.2%, up about two-thirds of a percent, just down about four-tenths of a one percent. Uh, I mean, what is kind of the relationship between small caps, large caps, mid-caps. I mean, what is it, you know, that we can kind of make some conclusions off of, uh, you know, if anything? Sure. Well, obviously, a one-day period, it's tough to make a conclusion. But our take is this. You know, if the dollar goes higher, U.S. dollar goes higher, small caps tend to do better as the more domestic by nature. Dollar's been beaten up. Had a terrible year last year, rough start this year. We think the dollar could be made close to making potentially a, some type of a major low is just the, the one-sided boat, the one-sided trade, and everyone expects the dollar to go lower. is getting awfully heavy. So if the dollar starts to trend higher, that could be a positive to the small caps, which, again, are really should do well with given the um, tax reform that we just took place. The small caps pay about six to seven to eight percent more in terms of corporate tax rates. So that's one area we do like for potential alpha the rest of this year. Even though it's been a rough start, we still think small caps can outperform large caps here. Uh, and and uh, small caps, interesting. Why small caps here? 
Well, I mean, again, just simply the, if the dollar starts to go higher, that can do well. Also, on a relative earnings basis, small caps are doing doing well-ish. But also, dollar goes higher. That's usually what happens. And, and let's be honest, you know, small caps look okay, but value also. Value and growth have flip-flopped every single year since 2011. Growth more than doubled value last year. And as you have higher yields, in which we've, we've been seeing, obviously, recently, that tends to do better for financials. And financials are obviously a big part of value. So we think value can outperform growth by a little bit. Small caps can outperform large caps a little bit uh, the rest of this year. Ryan Dietrich, thank you so much. Senior market strategist at LPL Financial on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. They've got about $615 billion in assets under management. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for a look at your winners and losers, movers and shakers. It is Thursday afternoon. Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson right here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, S&P 500, no surprise as we've seen the selling steepen throughout the day to see most names in the S&P 500 lower. In fact, 387 members of the S&P 500 showing declines to, uh, today. 117 higher, one unchanged. One name, though, I do want to talk about. It was a story I caught uh, earlier, and that has to do with Snap. Uh, the company did say um, that it sent employees a survey asking a broad set of questions to understand what they're happy about, what they want to improve, and what they want to say, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a company that's said to skip bonuses, and it's trying to get through this moral slump after a rough year. So I just thought I'd take a look at Snap, Snap rather, and Snap shares were down as much as 3.8%, but it rallied off those lows to close Lows down, Corey, just about six tenths of a percent. I mean, meantime, we know uh, Snap is, hmm, what is it? It's up about 18% this year, but I'm just surprised that considering all of the selling that we saw in the overall market, Snap shares actually finishing well off their lows today. There is a there's a beautiful part of Silicon Valley, a little place called Portola Valley, right mm. uh, near Woodside. Gorgeous little spot. And it gives a name to a company called Portola Pharmaceuticals, which is actually based in South San Francisco, near the San Francisco airport. Uh, Portola Pharmaceuticals. Total pharmaceuticals today, shares were down 25%. Huge collapse. The company still has a $2 billion market cap. Uh, The FDA uh, has indicated that it may require a a randomized study of a drug called Andexaxa. Yeah, right. Andexaxa. Easy easy for you to say. Yes, A-N-D-E-X-X-A. The, one of the A's and one of the X's is capitalized, just to make it more fun. Um, and it's for uh, 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 people with hem- hemophilia and life-threatening bleeding. Um, uh, and it, it's an anecdote for uh, factor uh, XA, which uh, factors help blood clot and stop bleeding. Anyway, uh, the notion that the FDA is going to require another study of this uh, is really bad news for the company that's making this drug. And so Portola Pharmaceuticals shares uh, just get rocked today with the notion that the, that drug won't get out there in the way that they want it to. Uh, and again, shares are down 25%, closing at $31.71. All right. So in a stock market where we saw more selling than, um, I guess, buying, you could say, today, because we did see those major equity averages lower, uh, one stock that stood out, the number three gainer in the S&P 500, shares of Best Buy. That stock up 3.9%, up $2.86 a share, closing the day at uh, $75.30 a share. And this had to do with 
earnings, right? We are, have been hearing from all of the retailers uh, this week, and Best Buy delivering a rosy outlook for the year uh, ahead uh, after its best holiday sales performance in more than a decade. So that's a pretty big deal, delivering a much-needed boost to uh, the retailer's turnaround uh, plan. So we did see uh, that stock uh, bumping up in today's session. So um, my favorite website, my favorite business website is, do you know, outside, of course, bloomer.com, which we love. Uh, I don't know. What do you I think the best design I've ever seen in a website is WageWorks, which processes uh, HR uh, paperwork and and FSA programs and all kinds of stuff that we, we use it. here at Bloomberg. Yeah. Right? And I think it's just wonderfully designed. It makes it process like it really simple. It's almost like working with a mobile phone, uh, even when you're at a desktop. Um, uh, so this wonderful design did not help them one bit today uh, with the stock down. 19% or 18.6% to be specific. Uh, Wagework, uh, the third largest loser in the Russell 2000 today. Why was the stock down so much? Why? The company postponed its 10K filing. Didn't uh -oh. say why. Also wouldn't report earning results as expected. Also wouldn't do their earnings call as expected. Um, the shares were initially halted and then collapsed today. Um, the company said it would provide an update as soon as practicable. Practicable? Yeah. What was that? That was what the press release said. <laughs> really? uh, so shares Oops, uh, just collapsing, hitting a 52-week low, but uh, uh, down uh, uh, massive, down 19%, closing at 42.70. Uh, interesting. Not a lot of short interest in this name. Only a uh, 9% of the float was short. Uh, nonetheless, uh, 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 the kind of headline you see in stocks that probably should have been shorted. Just want to mention quickly Nordstrom uh, crossing the Bloomberg terminal revenue a beat. Fourth quarter total comp sales to up 2.6%. That's better than the forecast that was out there for a nine-tenths of a percent Sorry, let me increase. throw a headline real quick. Yeah. Uh, microchips buying a microsemi. It's a microsemi is an eight point. Uh, well, they're going to pay eight point four billion dollars to do it. Microsemi, uh, uh, important uh, analog semiconductor maker. She's busy after the bell. Uh, let's get uh, to the volatility index report. The VIX on this Thursday afternoon, and the VIX closing up almost twelve percent, up two point thirty five, closing at twenty two point twenty. As we saw a bunch of selling on the equity markets. This is Bloomberg. Don't you Eric Gordon, we're joined us right now, professor at the University of Michigan, regular on the show. When I've never met you in person, even though we've been talking and emailing for years, like so it's we, great right? to see you. Yes. Yeah, um, uh, Eric Gordon uh, is a great uh, ability to look at uh, companies and see what's really going on. So tell me, Eric, what do you see going on with Qualcomm fighting off the very acquisitive semiconductor company known as Broadcom? Yeah, I think they don't want to do the deal. I think what we've seen is kind of interesting. You know, they started off, uh, uh, that is Qualcomm, person being attacked, the target, started off just saying no. No for the first offer, new offer, higher price, just said no. But you notice now they're making sounds like, oh, sign a non-disclosure agreement, let's get together, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how we'll handle the antitrust, the regulatory, and let's talk about price. So clearly Qualcomm has gotten a message from some influential shareholders that said, stop just saying no. Now, what I don't know is whether Qualcomm is really interested in negotiating or is just making the right noises to keep the shareholders at bay until next week when they have the big vote. And Right. Broadcom wants to buy Qualcomm, which is buying NXP. Yeah, this is this is like that the old New Yorker cartoon of the big fish swallowing the smaller <laughs> fish swallowing the smaller fish. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that vote is what March sixth. So March we'll... March sixth, and uh, you know if if Broadcom Qualcomm went, shareholder meeting, right? It's Qualcomm, and and uh, their directors are up for vote, and 
Broadcom, the attacker, has said, you know, here's our six directors, which would be a majority, vote for them, and then, of course, the deal will be done. So, you know, you have to wonder if Qualcomm is just making, is, is really interested in negotiating or is making enough noises to win that vote, in which case the negotiating power is in Qualcomm's favor. And and you know uh, let, let me let me suggest that, that 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 New Yorker metaphor is not quite right because it, it might be that the big the the middle fish is swallowing a, a, a bigger fish it'll make a bigger as a combined entity than the biggest fish in Broadcom. Yeah, it could be. I mean, if Qualcomm gets NXP, which uh, is to say that yeah, Qualcomm plus NXP might be too big for Broadcom to take on, even though Broadcom says it's willing to do it either way. Yeah, so you can be sure that Qualcomm really wants the NXP deal to stay alive because. It's a, it's a great defense to be that big. So Qualcomm has been shooting itself in the foot for some time now, uh, the last few years, uh, uh, whereas uh, uh, Broadcom Avago, ticker AVGO, um, has been uh, accelerating uh, both in terms of its acquisitions, but it seems to have been doing a good job with the companies that it manages. Um, one would think that the, the shareholder rights folks would say, hey, you guys fix this thing for us, you know. Please, someone take my Qualcomm. You know, I think they would if they had take some assurance. Take my Qualcomm, please. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and, you know, wow. I think they would if they had some assurance that the deal could close. But there are not just antitrust concerns, but now uh, the Pentagon has said there's some security concerns because of Broadcom, the attacker's uh, ties to the large Chinese telecom company that the Pentagon doesn't like. So, you know, I think if there was assurance the deal could close, I think the Qualcomm shareholders would, would bail out and say, you know, enough promises, enough of this battling with Apple, let's let another team take over. Well, speaking of teams looking to take over, tell me about the other triumvirate, if you will, between Comcast, Disney, Fox Assets. Um, how do you see that? Yeah, so I, you know, I haven't looked at the news in in the ninety seconds that I've been here, so I don't know right. if there are any new players trying to get into that not, one. Not in the last few minutes. No. Um, you know, I suspect I, I suspect in the end, it's it stays Disney and Fox and Sky, if they can get the Sky thing through in, in the UK. I, I, I suspect it'll be uh, Disney and Fox uh, for a couple of reasons, including something uh, your gadfly person, Tara LaChapelle, mm -hmm. mentioned, which is that uh, Disney has a strong balance sheet compared to Comcast. Disney's shareholders love the CEO, Bob Iger, have a lot of faith in his ability to make deals. I love him, too. Comcast, Comcast. Like a little crush, a little, little, little reporter crush little on, on crush. the CEO. It's not a good, it's not a pretty thing, but it's true. <laughs> I think we all do. Yeah, well, I mean, he's done He's done a fabulous job there. Comcast, not so much friend, so. so you know. Ah, Comcast, you know, a little less so. So, I, you know, I think in the end it's probably Disney and Fox. The, the, I think the real question there is does Disney come back to the table with a higher bid in reaction to Comcast's bid, which is higher than Disney's as of this morning at least? Um, yeah. I, I wonder if, if Brian Roberts is on some level, because it's not hugely out of the money, the bid. And I wonder if Brian Roberts on some level just wants to jack the price up we for Iger and make this. him spend a little bit more. Maybe this is my conspiracy theory, but yeah. um, I, you know, I don't know. There's no theory about Comcast that I, I would reject as unbelievable. <laughs> is that because you've tried to get a hold of customer service, too? M&A <laughs> <laughs> um, world, what else is interesting for you? Oh, boy. I, I, I think there are going to be a lot more. I, I think there are going to be more chip deals, which is sort of incredible because— Oh, you we, heard us talk about— uh, what was the one that just broke? Microsemi. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, that deal. Microchip that, to buy Microsemi. Right. Microsemi. So we, we Microsemi is on. That's a $3 billion deal. Yeah. 8.35. 8 yeah, 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 not a surprise. Although, I mean, we have about half as many chip companies as we had That's about That's what's interesting ago. to me. And it's chips are a hard business. I mean, even though we're talking about analog chips here, mostly uh, Microsemi also makes uh, some RF 
RF, uh, uh, basically uh, antennas for cell phones and so on. But uh, I, it's a hard business. They all the different chip types just don't work well together. Managing all that uh, manufacturing isn't easy. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm not sure that the skill of getting the design wins in one field transferred to getting the design wins in, in other fields. Um, but nevertheless, we've seen consolidation. Um, you know, the one that you have to wonder about is what happens to like the the big prize, Nvidia. Um, right. You know, when when does somebody, you know, maybe named SoftBank say, well, well, you know, but the price in that thing is, I mean, there's, there's price to the sky. I mean, that's that's not really the, the cheapest asset to get out there. Yeah, but you know, Massa was not afraid to step up with ARM uh, and paid a big price. True. Uh, um, I, I think it's I, I think it's an interesting company. I think it's the big prize. That's not the truth. Eric Gordon, uh, really great to see Fun you. Fun to have you here. Always great to have you on. Uh, Eric's a professor at the University of Michigan. You should enroll now. <laughs> enroll now at the U of M. Do it now. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be Box, Corey. It's an internet-based file sharing and storage service. I figured you did. They focus on business customers these days. Company works with Microsoft, Google, IBM, and other providers of enterprise technology through partnerships. Box was founded in 2005 and made its initial public offering a decade later. The company's name is also the ticker, Box. The shares have had quite a round trip in their three years of trading, They climbed as much as 77% at the outset, and in the next year, they gave back the entire game and then some. took two years for the stock to dig itself out of that hole. And so what happens? Another setback. Box's shares tumbled in response to disappointing forecasts late yesterday. The company predicted a wider first quarter loss and lower revenue than analysts expected based on a Bloomberg survey. Its sales forecast for this year also came up short. In response, Box had its biggest one-day decline ever. The stock tumbled 23%. And the results, the timing was uh, less than ideal for one of its peers, Dropbox, which filed just last week to go public. The CEO, uh, great guy, Aaron Levy, uh, is going to actually be on a show next week uh, right here on Bloomberg Radio. But uh, um, really charming guy uh, and uh, uh Known him for a long time. Wish he wish things were going better for them over there, but that's tough. It's, it's tough results. It's a tough business. They spend so much money in marketing in that company. It starts to look uh, like a right. Problem. And Bloomberg Intelligence points out they spend more than their peers, and that's an issue for them going forward. Dave Wilson, our stock editor. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.